0: Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all about taxonomic groups within the industry, and who better to talk to than James Ellis. Welcome James to the show. Hello, how are you? Yeah, doing really well, thank you. Now, if you want to introduce to all the
1: lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Yeah, I'm James, Uh, I am one of the senior keeper team at Wildwood Devon, so if anyone doesn't know about Wildwood, it's primarily native, ex-native species, just lots and lots of conservation work. love working in Devon, it's a beautiful place, beautiful part of the world. So the collection is quite small, primarily mammals. I'm a bird person overall. That's my thing. We are starting to build that up. We've just got a, a pair of chuff, which will hopefully, their progeny will go for reintroduction. And I'm hopefully uh, due to head down to Kent uh, about May time to help with the hand rearing for big reintroduction programme of trust down in Kent, uh, which is very, very exciting.
0: Absolutely. Now, that's where you are right now, but. I, along with the listeners, are very eager to know about your journey, about those life moments, those stepping stones throughout your career so far to to get into that position you're in currently. Do do
1: you have them, James? Definitely. Like when when I was 15, 16, um, I started, I used to breed tropical birds at home. That was my thing. Through my dad. My dad was very into his Australian parakeets and was breeding those. And I used to visit bird wells all the time with my mum. I remember going down there. They used to do an aviculture day every, every year. I went down there with my mum and met a lady called Laura Gardner, who was then working at Leeds Castle. At the end of it, went up to meet her, had a chat with her. And, uh, you know, as, as mums tend to do, mum was like, you know you want to work with animals, just don't talk to her about it. So I was like, oh, OK. And I was mumbling through my little 15-year-old, 16-year-old embarrassed self. Like, and mum was like, oh, get out of the way. She's like, how could he get into this industry? Because he loves working with animals. And she was like, oh, well, write to your local collection and see if you can volunteer. And we were like, well, that's you. Oh, just write to us then. So I I did. I spent all of the six weeks of my summer holidays working there. I was very lucky that within a a, a couple of weeks, they gave me my own section to look after as a little 16 year old spotty brat. But I was very good with birds then. I I bred them since I was about five. So I've worked with birds a long time and it was Australian parakeets that uh, there's the section i've worked on funnily enough at the end of that i i loved it i was they were lovely to me they at the end of it had bought me four, if you ever uh, seen four shorts Parrots? huge great book all hand-drawn Beautiful pictures. They bought me a copy of that, gathered together 50 quid, check for me. And they also gave me a Patagonian conya that I'd hand reared there. So <laughs> uh, I walked away with the, all these things. And then about three or four months later, my parents got a phone call from Laura saying, look, we've, one of the guys is leaving. We'd really like to offer James a job. I was still at school. Didn't know what I wanted to do, you know, the standard thing, really. My mum and dad were very pragmatic about stuff like that. They were like, well, it's not up to us to say anything. You need to talk to James about it. And Laura did. And I was like, uh, yes, please. I'd love to do that. I was, again, incredibly lucky when I came in. I left school, tried to do evening classes and stuff to sort of get more of my exams. Didn't do very well in my exams, so I couldn't, couldn't focus very well. When, that, when I came in, they actually made up a new role so they could pay me a little bit more. And at that time, I was very spoilt there. tiny collection, but an amazing collection. There was only five keepers, uh, including Laura. But we were we were leagues ahead uh, of, of a lot of other places with breeding of endangered species. We had, I think at that stage, already had four UK first breedings with birds, various species. We worked with blue-crowned laughing thrushes that the Laura is still stud book keeper for, and that's a global stud book now. With the with the with the blue crown. Taco we were the first collection in the UK to parent rear taco And then you know, we had two breeding pairs. We bred Channel Bill Toucans, which hadn't been bred in the UK for 25 years when we got them. We were good. I was very lucky. I, I rose quite quickly there. By the time I was 18, 19, I was I was head keeper there. Laura was curator and I was head keeper. And I had 16 wonderful, wonderful years there. Probably spoilt me for a lot of other zoos because we were a family. We did everything together. Like, uh, Laura actually is now conservation director at Wildwood. She still has to put up with me. And one of her sons works there as well, who is now, well, I think he's in his early 20s now and he's taller than me. And I knew when he was a baby so yeah very very close very very close so it was, it was very hard uh, sadly the then md decided she wanted to close the Avery, save money we were we were a big big expenditure but we had jersey zoo chester zoo london zoo edinburgh all right and say this is too important collection to lose please reconsidered it any other way sadly there wasn't um, and the collection was lost time um, which was a real tragedy it was very very hard for us we'd were we we always thought we'd be there um, and I'd probably still be there today to be fair if it hadn't happened so moved to London and I was there for five years I believe and then moved to Marwell for three years Birdwell briefly after that and now I'm at uh, what would them? so roundabout been everywhere done many roles uh, but I'm, I'm happy at this sort of level I think this is my sweet spot now
0: what a journey so far now looking at that journey looking at your past and your present and i guess leading to that future do you specify yourself as a certain type of taxer? are you a keeper who looks after and considers himself uh, a mammal keeper a bird keeper a reptile keeper or someone or are you quite general where would you put yourself would you pigeonhole yourself or is it not as
1: simple as that it can be that simple and I would say 100% I'm a bird keeper but because of the way we work at Wildwood I've had to di- and please any other bird keepers listening I, I, I'm still a bird keeper I promise you I've had to diversify into mammals much to my sort of like I, I, it was dragged kicking and screaming into it but to be fair I've I've i worked with bears now wolves lynx dormice Red squirrels, Arctic fox. Um, I, I'm still a bird keeper, but I do, I do appreciate mammals more now, and I do enjoy working with them. I still struggle sometimes not to sort of put birdy-related jargon in when I'm working with the mammals. Like, go, oh, I'm going to go and repurchase the wild cags, no, it's not repurching, It's just putting climbing structures in now. So I still do things like that, um, and I still base a lot of my stuff on birds because that that is my thing. And to be fair, that's why I'm I'm kind of at. Devon because they're they're, they're, a fantastic group of keepers but not a huge amount of bird experience there so the idea is the collection will expand we're looking to to get European stalk um, European crane and hopefully down the line some other species as well and and, and look at reintroductions and, and rewilding with those as well so the idea is that my experience will build that up and then then that'd be fantastic. I do miss my tropical birds a bit. You know, I've worked with everything from hummingbirds all the way up to harpy eagles. So I miss my. I do miss my tropical, but it's very nice to be so actively involved in in conservation now, which is, I think, where some of the zoos are sort of, through no thought of their own, are flagging a bit. And I think there's so much good in-situ stuff to be done in this country that zoos can get involved in. I think it's it's a difficult area to sort of shy away from now almost because there's so much going on but yeah pretty much a bird keeper they're my thing i I know birds very very well i tend to be able to pick out ways and means to get birds to do what i require them to do with fairly little effort so yeah i do i do love my bird
0: absolutely and I, i guess leading to that then with your experience is it better for someone who's going through their career to to go in with a fresh mind and an open mind allowing that species to find them Or should they go in with that passion and that focus on one species and that drive to just simply get what
1: they want from the off? I think it's a bit of column A, a bit of column B. I think there's times where you can use your passion for a species to get you a job, because if you're really passionate about a group of animals, it will come through in your interviews and stuff. So I think that's very easy. And I think if you can strike that balance of professionalism with passion, you're, you're there. However... If you're really undecided, there's nothing wrong with taking your time and and work, doing some volunteer work and spending time on working with one. Maybe this isn't for me, because at the end of the day, if you're not passionate about what you work with, you're doing them, the animals you work with, no favours, because it's sometimes hard to bring the focus you need to understand their different biological needs and how they move, how they behave, et cetera, et cetera. If you're not passionate about them, if you've already got that passion, yeah, go for it. If you're not sure, then take it slow and just maybe move around to a couple of different groups and see where that passion might come from. Because something, sometimes you'll just work with something and suddenly go, oh, God, I love this animal. This is a, these are amazing. Yeah, this is where I'm at. I didn't think I'd be interested ever in working with large carnivores. Like ever. It's not for me, not that thing. I and mean, then I met the bears at Wildwood, like they're the best thing ever. They're lovely. Like they're so much fun to work with. And if they're, they're such characters, never write off other taxons, because you see, they take you by surprise, but you know, I think it's one of those things that you, you just got to play it by ear a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree. And with every taxonomic group comes a whole
0: new husbandry, a whole new learning and a whole new adapting to those specific species under that taxonomic group. Now, from your experience with those birds that you've worked with along with those other array of species, with enrichment, obviously enrichment changes on the species, on the taxa. Have you come up with any quirky ideas over the years Have you come up with anything which specifically suits to the ground that certain species over to you james the world's your oyster
1: give us some quirky and amazing ideas birds are nice and easy because a lot of their enrichment stuff is based on on feeding and, and food so we did a lot of the castle we did lots of like refurbing we were very lucky it was 500 acres where they shed trees and stuff so they would do lots of cutting back especially willow which is really good for birds we were very lucky that they will just dump trailer loads outside so what we would do we'd shut the macaws all inside and we would literally fill that we take the fronts of all the avery's, and we would fill them with willow like you couldn't see anything else and then we'd just take the potholes out, let them out, and they, oh my god, it was so much fun. They'd be hanging off the, the long fronds of willows, swinging around it, chewing it, destroying it, and they loved it. You know, something as basic basically that to when I was at Marwell, we, we wanted to shy away from the standard feeding of birds, which is, you know, lots of finely chopped stuff in bowls everywhere. Because birds don't feed like that, obviously. So we were lucky in there. We had mango trees, papaya trees all growing, banana trees all growing, fruited um, and did really well. So we decided we would not chop any fruit and veg for the birds. Nothing. So the the, the T16s, the, the pelleted foods, will be in the back of house um, in a few places. So even we started with, we had java sparrows, then we didn't give them any foreign finch anymore. We started um, hanging millet sprays out in the play Everything was natural. We would steam veg and stick up in the trees. And we were concerned with a few species like the fruit does, where they manage it. And then you'd watch them take whole giant grapes out of the bunch of the grapes we put at the tops of the trees. We'd we, we wedge huge long bamboo sticks and put the put the fruit right up in the canopy. So the birds could all forage naturally. And they would. And what you would find is the starlings and the turaco and the fruit does would, would Forage on the papaya tree, knock papaya down the rural parts should all come and eat all the papaya that's dropped. So at, at proper natural behaviours that you would be finding in the wild. And although that's not really enrichment per se, it's actually natural behaviors that we encouraged and the foraging levels went up on all of our birds ridiculously high we struggled in several areas where they just refused to eat whole food they just didn't understand it the more temperate species ironically were the ones that, that struggled more the tropical stuff was really good um and they 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 went hell for leather for it and and it worked so well and it, it had the added bonus of about halving keeper time as well because we weren't all we'd have to do is steam a couple of swede or a couple of parsnips or a couple of carrots, put them up in a tree, that was their feed. And we varied it, we, we'd we change it so we had a, a very, so they were getting a variety still, there'd be one day where it'd be two steamed veg, one fruit item. And then when the papaya trees and the mango trees, and the banana trees were, were fruiting, we'd go, well, we're not them any fruit in this period. Because as they would in the wild, if there's a fruiting tree, they just spend their time in that fruiting tree you know they won't tend to forage too much for other things because they've got a a, a valuable food source there and it worked really really well like I say primarily for the tropical stuff temperate stuff was a bit bit more of a pain in the butt they didn't seem to take to it as quickly having moved into mammals we have wildwood as a very good ethos on enrichment so we aim to get every species at wildwood enrichment every day different enrichment every day Um, and we've got a whole pet loft uh, I was with full of enrichment and it's not just food we try and in fact we try and shy away from food if possible so a lot of our enrichments is scent based so really good one we did we took a hessian sack that had been in the links and the links sent over everything so it was literally dripping when we took it out and we did a scent trail in the bears and then cut up the hessian bat and put it in various locations and then let the bears out and the bears are very very um scent orientated um and they were just on it like mish the male was on it rolling on it lucy uh bless her she ran out uh was like oh my god there's something here i don't like it ran around panicked ran back inside and hid for half the day so we we're like maybe we won't do this one as, as often but it was still really good behaviors um and then she kept coming out mish he was looking he was sniffing we put them up trees he was climbing up trees to dra- drag it down you know so we we, we, we do as much as we can um, we do a lot of burying food for the bears as well and otters are quite hard so they're not that interested in anything other than if it's food orientated so we do lots of food orientated enrichment with, with the otters we do loads so it's really good and you know having come from many collections that the enrichment isn't always top of the agenda it's a bit of an eye opener to come to a collection where you're actually actively encouraged to think of a huge variety of enrichment like I say we try that doesn't mean everybody gets enrichment every day but we always try and and, and do do enrichment especially for the the, the 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 animals that struggle a little bit more sometimes in captivity like you know cats and 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 the more intelligent bears especially um because they can stare at it very very quickly yeah so we, we really sort of push it um, and we try and push it really hard as well and and it's really good because the keepers at Wildwood are actively and the volunteers as well to be fair the volunteers are actively encouraged to come up with enrichment ideas so it up for us and then we we um we'll go through it um and if it's safe and if we think it's applicable then then we'll use it if not we'll sort of encourage them in the right path.
0: just listening to you there why absolutely a love and adore about enrichment with our animals is it always starts off being for the animal and in the end it's part for the animal and part of the keeper, absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that as well. Like, got this really good idea, and like you'll see something, uh, and like, it's really funny how what you'll see human things. So, uh, when I was at London, we had uh, real problems with gold, as you do in the Penguin Pool game, coming down, taking the blood, all that sort of stuff. And I found online big silver balls that float on the top with eyes on that were supposed to scare the seagulls um, and herons and stuff like that. Put them out on the on the water seagulls and herons didn't care but the penguins love them. They played with them constantly. And I, we, I got an enrichment award for that, even though it was nothing to do with that. It was just, it was this huge added bonus of like, oh yeah, they love it. So it, anything that reflects. So they, what they were doing, the penguins would quite often get the reflection of the light down in the bottom of the pool moving about. So they'd be diving down to look at the, look at the reflection, which again would be similar to what they would do. They'd be seeing the reflection of scales of fish. Um, that's why quite often penguins will follow light sources around because they've got that sort, of, that sort of target lock on it. Um, and they loved it. Yeah, it was really good fun. And it actually became huge enrichment for them at the end of the day. And it worked really well. So it was like, OK, well, it didn't work for that. It's working for that. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, worked really well.
0: Yeah, I love it. Now, enrichment's one thing. Enclosure design is a whole nother. We can make our enclosures so good that enrichment is an inbuilt and a daily occurrence within that enclosure design. And I guess each taxonomic group has its own challenges, its own triumphs what have you learned along the way james with regards to your own taxa and enclosure design whether it be anything for training for husbandry for welfare whatever it may be is there anything quirky
1: or simply needed for your taxa it's very difficult with birds because obviously they inhabit every single niche and area but it's it's encouraging people to look at uh, exhibit design with what you need to know what species are going in there first so if it's a generic aviary, you' you're, you're can be in a little bit of trouble but you can do broad things like make sure it's got adequate areas to put perching uh, away from water sources so they're not going to poo in it, good shelter that you can you can turn around. Bird, bird exhibits tend to be very sort of practically built in that um, but a, a really good one that I was very lucky to be involved with doing, um, although I didn't feel lucky at the time, was when Land of the Lions opened in London. There was an old Avery in there All the way through Land of the Lions being built, we were going, are you, what are we doing with this Avery? And they're like, no, nothing, nothing's going in there. Nothing's happening there. And we're like, okay, are you sure nothing's happening? Because it was full of reeds. It was like six weeks before Land of the Lions opened. I got called in by a couple of my managers going, yeah, we want to turn it into a vulture, Avery. You've got five weeks, no budget, uh, and it's a royal opening as well. Right, and this was, this was a delightful project given to me, and it was terrifying. So we spent two weeks stripping it. I drew up a rough design about what I wanted it to do. The idea eventually was going to, be, to become a mixed exhibit with vultures, uh, griffin vultures, um, pheasants, uh, derbian parrots, and occipital blue pies, or, or red bill blue pies. And it, so it'd be really nice, it, Asiatic mixed ex- exhibit, even though, okay, technically, griffin vultures were were the African. So it was like, okay, but we'll, we'll gloss over that a little bit. The idea were we would later on, we get white that vultures in there as well. That was the plan, I believe. So we're like, okay, we'll do that. So it was kind of, it was an old wade array. We said a, a, a leaking pool in it. So we turned that into a dry riverbed that, that went into a pond. So it could, the water would gum up into it. So it was that we, we stripped everything out. Two weekends before, we moved 22 tonnes of substrate between 12 keepers in uh to get it done including huge rocks we were manhandling in, in one at a time in a wheelbarrow because we could do the best thing about it was we, we'd never got the gri- the griffin vultures to realistically do it they, they'd laid eggs but they, they'd never been fertile and i was convinced it was because the, where the old age was that the, the male couldn't mate the female properly you could only mate side by side which is very effective so i designed the shed in there uh, which was going to be for blue pea, fowl. Well, it was supposed to be green, but ended up being blue, which I was very unhappy about. To have a, a, a sunken roof that I could put sand in, that that would encourage the vultures to be able to breed, and we did it. We we moved the vultures in, not ideally, but we moved the vultures in the day of the opening. Uh, but they were really good. They, all three of them settled in. The one of them, had, she was a new bird and hadn't met the other two, but they were very, very good. The blue pea fowl were fine. We was, it was a bit of a hit and miss to see if it, we were a bit concerned, but everyone got on well. It opened. And to be fair, a lot of people said it was the best thing, <laughs> the whole thing. So I was really happy. The icing on the cake was that, that within that year, the Griffins went down. Uh, they had an egg. They sat full term. Didn't break the egg, which is another hysteri- thing they did historically. It didn't hatch, but we took, we, when it was overdue, we took the egg and it was fertile. It, unfortunately, the chick was malpositioned. It died on hatch. But that was the furthest they'd ever got. It was the aviary design that got them to that place. So that's one of the key things is looking at what you do, what you want these animals to achieve in there and looking at their, their natural habitat, their natural biology, and going, well, how can we tweak this to, to here to make this Avery. Encourage these animals to do that. Um, I think that's a real key thing, and there's a bit roundabout way to say it, but it's just like, okay, I know there's an issue here. I can do this. This should work. And quite often they'll go, oh, you've done this for us. Brilliant. This is what we do, and they did exactly what we thought they would do, um, and it worked fantastically well. Uh, but it's knowing your animals as well. It's knowing knowing the individuals you work with as well. So if you're building a new exhibit for existing animals you know where they like to spend their time normally, you know where what, what they tend to, how they tend to behave during the day, what they do at the end of the day. So you can design it okay, like well, okay, We know they're normally quiet at this time of the day and hide up, but they like uh, little bamboo areas. So what we'll do is we'll do a bamboo area near at the front where visitors should still be able to see them, but they'll like to hide up in that. Yeah, things like that. It's quite, I know obviously if they've got specific breathing requirements, you can build that into a new exhibit as well. So you can do things, say for Toko for example, they like about two weeks of really hot weather. And in that, if you pretty much give them a, a, a little spray bath in that, you can almost guarantee you can get them to go down to breed after that period if you know your animals. So we used to get, we'd look at the weather forecast, yeah, we've got two weeks of hot weather. And they tell you, because we'd be carrying the hose around, they start cooling. So you're like, OK, they want us to hose them, and then you'd hose them. And then we'd also, at that stage, cover the front of the box with cork, put a little split in it, and they'd excavate the box so you knew you could new catalysts to get your animals to work so in a newer taco avi for example i'd go well I, what i know i need to do is put inbuilt fountain systems or you know sprinkler systems so i can just plug it in turn a hose on and i can get them to do what i want them to do and they'll have that encouragement and it's sometimes a bit easier than lugging a hose real round and giving them a little misting so yeah you know your animals you know how they breed, how they work. So you can build enrichment in where insects come out. You know, I've seen some great ones where it's the fake termite mounds, where locusts climb up, uh, things like that. You know, you, there's lots of things you can do that you can build in. It's just budget trees normally the, the issue. And with new builds, especially, it's making sure keepers are actually involved in the design and, and half time, you'll get these incredible, incredible architects coming to design this beautiful thing. And it's massively impractical, does nothing for the animals. It's just aesthetics for visitors and you think it's really, whereas a keeper does it, we'll take into consideration what visitors see, but the primary basis of what we want is for those animals to exhibit natural behaviours in a non-stress environment where they have access to get away from people, line of sight blocking, those sort of things, you know, and that's not a consideration generally. Of artists. Now, there are some good zoo-based ones now which are coming on Zoom, which actually are taking those sort of things into consideration. We worked with a really good one in uh, Marwell when we were designing the wetlands areas, the new wetlands build that was, that was at that time happened until COVID hit us. But the nice thing was I got to sit down with my then senior and completely design the inside to, to do what, what it was going to be revolutionary for, for flamingos. The idea was it was going to be a tidal bit in the in the house, so the water would and the water would be warm as well. So they, they should in theory never have foot problems ever again because of how we were going to be managing Unfortunately, COVID hit. The but the the money that was going into the exhibit went on to keeping the zoo functioning as, as a lot of zoos did did struggle through COVID. So uh, hopefully the designs are somewhere in there and they'll all come back later on. But yeah, there's there's a lot of that. It's knowing your animals knowing where they come from in the world and extrapolating what you think you can do in captivity to mimic that or encourage behaviours like that.
0: Very well put. And that leads us to the big questions. As part of this podcast where we tackle some of the larger questions in the industry and try and find out some of the answers along the way. Now, James, we're going to start off nice and easy. I still feel like you're going to erupt into conversation with this one. And that is some advice for anyone listening in who maybe wants some advice coming into the industry, progressing throughout the industry, or simply wanting to trade from one zoo to another. What advice do you have with regards to a taxonomic group, or simply how to get that first little foot in the door to getting in, I guess what I'm alluded to is what advice overall do you have? That's what it boils down to. That's what everyone's going to ask. Go for it,
1: James. Over to you. It's really tricky because so many collections have different things they require. Yeah, most zoos expect uh, a degree level education, which ironically I don't have and has actually held me back in, in applying for collections several times, even though the amount of time I've spent working with them was I think every three years working equates to a one-year degree, I think it works out. Is. But because of all the different that a lot of zoos use, you sometimes don't even get through the door. But obviously education is really good. If you can get any form of degree, it's fantastic. I would argue practical experience outweighs that. I've met many degree-based keepers that I probably would never employ in a million years. I've met a lot more pe- keepers that have just worked really hard at learning about their animals, have had animals at home that I would employ in a heartbeat. It's because zoos require it a lot. of time. Some zoos will, will do it for you, so London were brilliant at that. they do the DIMSA. You could do the DIMSA when you worked at London. You'd have to stay, I think it's about two to three years after completing the DIMSA, or you'd have to repay the, the cost of the DIMSA, which was fair. Volunteering is really good. Um, if you can volunteer at collections that actually let you work around animals to a degree very beneficial unfortunately a lot of places will use the volunteer process to get window cleaners in and things like that which is really sad and in a couple of collections i've worked at, i was actively discouraged training volunteers about working with animals because it was seen as a waste of time because they were never going to be employed which was i thought was a really sad attitude i love as you can probably guess i love talking about animals Uh, there's nothing more enlightening and encouraging to me than tweaking someone's interest and actually go, do you know what I'd like to, especially if I can tweak them over to the bird side, which is always the bottom of the list realistically in a lot of zoos for getting people in. Most people want to work with the big charismatic mammals which I understand, but birds, I think, uh, yeah, they're one of those species where you can work in with them nearly always. They're all, like every animal, they've got great characters, even down to the tiniest little finch, they've still got characters. So yeah, volunteer work is really important. It can be harder getting back in if you've left, but don't let that dissuade you. Take your time. Expect disappointments. Try not to have your... Sites set on election be prepared to move. Be prepared for a lot of disappointments because it's still it's still currently is a field that's very popular. Judging by having put some interview adverts out and looking on the BR's website for adverts still going, it seems to be that that they are struggling now to fill some roles, uh, especially more senior roles. The the a lot of the senior keepers level seem to be leaving the zoo world, which is very sad. Uh, the other thing I would say to your company is make sure financially you are safe to do so because it is a very low paid job. It's a long hour job. Be sure that you've got the mental fortitude sometimes to deal with it. You're gonna you're gonna have some tough times. And if you can't sometimes knuckle down to sort of swallow that for a little bit and, and and get on with your job. It's, it's not going to be the the, the field for you. It's an amazing field and I don't think I'll change anything I would do in a million years. Now I I recognize now more than ever, the benefit of your mental health, huge amount of PTSD in in zookeepers and zoo vets, especially zoo vets, um, which is being ignored for a long, long time. So that, that's, that's being addressed slowly. So that's fantastic. Do that. Yeah. Just, just, you know, people on just keep pushing volunteer annoy people you know be that person that turns up make sure you're passionate when you're there not just for, for ticking boxes because at the end of the day if if they're looking to fill a role and you have be really passionate you have come up with a rich good enrichment ideas and you're you're really keen they may offer you something at the end of the day yeah not always but they, they may yeah i think mean, that's that's probably it's very difficult because some zoos are very good, good at um, bringing people up. Others use always like to bring in from the outside.
0: Some really, really great advice, and I guess leading on from that, question two is another bit of advice needed, and that is we all get told quite regularly by our our collections, by our bosses in all workplaces that a good work and home life balance is needed. You know, wherever you are, you should have this balance. So the question I've got for you with this, James, is. With regards to this, is it possible? With our industry, it's very hard to not think about our animals, to not bring it home. How
1: do we do it? Is it possible? Over to you. It's, it's, it's difficult, not impossible, but things you can do to help are make sure you don't have your work emails on your phone. That's probably one of the biggest thing that I can say. Is just don't have them. I know it's like good to check. Don't have them. Cut it off. Have a pad and a pen by the bed so that it, you can try and write down any ideas you have as quick as you can on the, and just let it, uh, let it go. And then find coping mechanisms. Uh, I, I like, if I'm struggling, I run. I like to run, and that is a really good way to, to sort of clear your head. So if you're struggling, then don't you find things, if you're having a bad day, that help you clear your head. And the one thing I would definitely say is talk about stuff as well. If you're struggling, you're having a bad day, talk to someone about it. Even if they don't really understand what you do and how it should affect you, you find someone that would just listen. And just say you just, sometimes you just need to clear your head a bit. Um, and, and, and that generally makes you feel better. Uh, and, and, and remember at the end of the day, that if you are working yourself to the bone, not able to relax, have it in the back of your mind that at the end of the day, that won't be helping your animals. There's this common belief amongst keepers I, that I, I, I think that oh, I have to come in when I'm not well. I have to do this because otherwise my animals will suffer. Well, no, they won't. There'll be somebody to look after them. Where they will suffer is if you're working five days a week, having to come in and cover, coming in ill when you're not real. That's actually when they'll suffer because you're not able to put that correct effort in because you're, you're not well. If you're ill, have time off. <laughs> You're entitled to it. You're entitled to be a little bit selfish now and again. Remember that as well. Like you don't have to do everything. Someone will be there. If you've left notes for people to do something, don't worry about it. If it's not been done, it won't be the end of the world. Try and work ways where you can get that disconnect a little bit away from, from being at the zoo. But that's not to mean that you're not the person that doesn't give a damn and... Everybody will know that if there's a dire emergency, you're still going to go in and help. Like if, there's, if something bad's happened, of course you're going to go in and help. But it's actually having the ability to go, do you know what? This weekend, unless it's an absolute emergency, don't contact me. Don't. I don't want to hear anything. I'll, I'll, I'll hear when I get back to work. You know, you need to create these little barriers. And then what you could do is gently add on little bits and pieces. And always remember that doesn't mean you don't care. That means you care about yourself a bit
0: once again some really really great advice and that's number two totally finished off you've achieved that and you move on to the final question of these big questions and that leads us to you know the UK we have such an abundance of zoos we have some of the largest quantity of zoos in such a small place of anywhere in the globe but we are so diverse you know whether it be a diversity or a specialization within species or simply what we identify as, whether it be a farm park, a zoo, a safari park, a wildlife park, you name it. We are quite diverse and we all slightly educate, even though we have the same standards to a certain degree in different ways. So the question I've got for you is, do you feel we're doing enough to educate our public, to get our messages across and to truly connect on a a countrywide scale, for the collective goals.
1: Yeah, I think there is more to be done. I think zoos need to be much more transparent. Like we've been very open and honest. We've got two geriatric Asian short-clawed otters. You can't keep Asian short-clawed otters on their own. They're a non-native species for us as well. So they're not a species we would consider. They're only there because they were there historically and this was their retirement home. We weren't going to move them off. This was the family group. They are always going to stay. But we've made, there'll be an ethical review, but we've already made the decision that when one otter goes, the other one will be euthanated because it's much more humane to do that than it is to attempt to bring another geriatric otter in which they're likely not to get on with or leave an officer on its own which is just a no that so i think z and we're very open and honest about that if people ask us what are you going to do we tell them we're very like this is this is big and they're like oh it's tra- yeah but, so, but but would you if it was your best friend in the world and you're never going to be able to have another one you're very old what would you want to do at the end of the day we're like we're very open on this about it we explain we explain the logistics of keeping an otter on its own it's really unfair they stress like we had uh, days one of otters wasn't very well had to go to the vets even that short period away chestnut the other otter was calling for him running around looking highly agitated missed his buddy really stressed and when they got back they were you know grooming they were very you know it was lovely to see them when they're back but it told you everything you needed to know about what would happen when they, when one of those otters is sadly going to pass. And I think a lot of zoos try and hide stuff like that, which isn't very good because there's there's a really good reason for doing it. It's not you're not doing it because you want to. Like that's that's nonsense. Really good reasons and really good welfare based reasons. I think zoos need to be very open. I think zoos do need to push conservation better. Some zoos pay a bit of lip service to conservation, and there's small things they do like i again i'm very biased i've worked in wildwood for eight months now and the ethos of wildwood is we don't everything we do is for reintroduction or conservation so we don't tend to breed species that already so for example at escot we'll never breed the brown bears no need we won't breed breed the wolves no need we won't breed the lynx until a a rewilding program for lynx We've got two female wildcat that will be being used to, to breed once the rewilding program with that them is up and running. We house beaver, but we don't breed beaver. But what we're doing is now we're looking at rescuing or rehabilitating uh, translocated beavers that are struggling in the UK. So there is, you can uh, apply for a license to remove beavers from your site if they're causing damage. And so there has been a number. So we're, we're, what Kent are doing, they're taking in young beavers or family groups that are being translocated, holding them, getting them fit, and then Wildlife Trust will find areas for them to go to. So eventually that, the same thing will happen at ESCO. So there's things zoos can easily do that will add to conservation, add to uh, education. And it is about educating, educating people about why animals are becoming endangered, uh, what the, the exotic pet trade does, what zoos can do and have done. Talk about the highly successful reintroduction programmes that zoos have been part of um, and, and how it's not as straightforward as, oh, I've bred like animals, we're just going to put them back in the wild. Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes on to it you know, push, push that side uh, a lot more, talk to people, engage with visitors about, about their, their issues with these, because you hear visitors are very good at talking loudly when keepers are around about why, why there's a problem with that city. The biggest thing we have is, oh, we can't see the animals. We went to this collection and all the animals were out all the time. And you're like, yeah, that isn't a good thing. That's not a good thing because the, where they, those animals are, they've got nowhere to get away from the visitors. Now, what the best collections are the ones that, that have that happy medium of the animals can get away, but there's maybe distance access so you can see them from a long way. And it explains to people why that's a good thing. The biggest thing we have is with our bears. They're, they've got access to probably about half acre, maybe less than that, holding area, and then the main huge exhibit, woodland. And they've got the house, and they can be anywhere now, in the summer, when it got to 40 degrees, they stopped coming out during the day. They were coming out at night and explained to people that, that actually that's what they want to do. We're not going to change that for you. I'm really sorry, but it's because it's of the best interest of the animal. And, and gradually working because people, you know, you, you know what visitors are like. They don't see an animal that's your fault. Um, and actually, when you can explain to them actually, but this is why, this is what they're doing. This is how they, like we've got bears in torpor at the moment. Um, and they're like oh can we not see them Like, n- n- no no you can't that, that, because they'll be disturbed by you oh okay and then you explain one like, right okay that makes sense thank you uh, and it's just when you're walking past visitors and you hear a snidey comment don't just keep walking as frustrated as it is stop politely go uh, address it you know um ask if there's a problem engage with them and try and swing them to your way of thinking there's always going to be people that that will never come to you come around to your way of thinking it's the same thing with the the anti-zoo and the the zoo fraternity you know the the anti-zoos will never listen to the good things that zoos do never and the zoos quite often refuse to engage with the anti-zoo because they don't want to be drawn out in these protracted arguments and i get that but the issue then becomes is the amount of people ignorant of ignorant about animal behavior that listen to these people and where we where realistically we've both got the same things in mind and the same goals we want our animals to be healthy and, 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 and happy they want our animals to be healthy and happy and in the wild there is a there is a connection there that, that should be utilized and discussed in a in a in a mature way it's just how we do that is has never been discovered yet and it's 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 really frustrating because you, it's quite sad when you see animal rights constantly attacking zoos and zoos not defending themselves i find that very frustrating because we need to start actually arguing and but with with valid points not going oh we do this you know we need to go well this is actually how it works and this is why we do this and this is the This is the welfare basis of what happens if we don't do this.
0: And just like that, there we go. The big questions are totally out of the way. You've absolutely smashed that. And thank you very much for sharing your honest opinions for it. It's really, really great words. Now, we now lead on to the final part of this podcast episode. It's the quick fire round. As our listeners will know by now, this will either fly by or erupt into conversation. So let's give it a go and see how we
1: get on, James. Now, number one, is what is your favourite animal? i got two, I reckon. One is my vulture at London, Phil, uh, my Griffin vulture, because she was hysterical and she used to be... She was hand-reared and she would just follow you around. Um, and you quite often find her put her head in your pocket. She's such a weirdo. And probably as a species, blue-crowned laughing thrash, because they were a species that pretty much extinct in the wild. They're down to about 200 individuals. And it was a bird that, that wasn't really known very well through the zoo world. There was Leeds Castle, uh, Chester and Jersey really working with them um, a long time ago. Um, and it's probably one of my proudest things that we were a collection that really, 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 really pushed it as a species to work with. And so now that, that, that literally nearly every collection probably has a pair of blue laughing larvae, fashion cactus ca- speaking. they're doing very well. The, the numbers of the wildest, uh, I think, are still fairly level, but are, I would like to say, increasing slightly. And, the, the, yeah, we we help fund research on them in the wild and all sorts of stuff like that. So that yeah, there is a, uh, a species very close to my heart. Two very, very
0: good answers. Now, the second one then is, what is your top tip for mental health and wellbeing?
1: Make sure you have time away from work. like i say don't have your emails on your phone give yourself genuine time to get some clarity uh, uh, and find something eat well (laughs) eat well exercise you know have something that that enables you to blow off steam um because there's always going to be those frustrating days and you know for me to be able to go for a a nice long run clears your head massively uh, uh, you know and, and talk about stuff some really really
0: great words now the next one then is what is your favourite
1: and the best part of the industry? Oh, keeping, working with animals and working with really cool people. The higher you get, the less cool people you seem to work with, because no one likes the managers. <laughs> we're not, we're not the fun guys. The keeping side is the best, and and as keeping has progressed, it's become. Um, much more of a combined thing like you are you're almost like a psychiatrist for your animals sometimes as well so you've got that whole thing you you know you're the people that sort of work out what's going that try to work out what's going on in their heads and make their lives better and happier and stop the negatives and increase the positives so yeah, when you get that sort of stuff right, share it. Make sure you let people know. When it goes wrong, share it. Like when stuff goes badly, share it. But yeah, it's it's working with those keepers and the animals that it doesn't get better than that. You are like little families like.
0: For sure. Now the next one could take you absolutely anywhere in this world and that is globally what zoo would you like to visit and
1: why? A uh, Jerong bird park because it's amazing. Totally rebuilt it. Multi-million, it's like it's, it's the most incredible place. I, think I desperately want to go and visit there. That's on my list. Uh, Auckland Zoo, really want to go there. I, I worked, I bullied San Diego Zoo into taking me uh, on work experience for three weeks. On the plus side, I bred their blue crown laughing thrushes while I was there, and they hadn't bred them for seventeen years. So yeah, <laughs> they, they were. I've, I've made very good friends through that, um, and i it's an amazing collection to work at as well. If you, if you ever get the chance to go to San Diego. Oh, it's it's spot on. The wild animal park is incredible as well. Yeah, so they're probably my top three.
0: Some very iconic zoos there. And uh, yeah, definitely a few on my list as well. So no, some great, great choices. Now, the next one up then is, what would you say is the one trait inside yourself, one attribute, which has allowed you to push on and become the person and get into the position you're in today? Perseverance, I think. I like it, short and sweet, but I think that really sums up our industry in this whole conversation. Perseverance, determination and dedication. Is what it's all about. So no, a very, a very good and a word which I think is is definitely worth mentioning. Now the next one up then is, if you weren't a zookeeper, what would you be? What role in this world would you be playing if you weren't in the zookeeping role? I can't answer this. I have no idea.
1: Good luck to you. It probably would be something in conservation. It would still have to be something with animals. So I, I would. My other thing, I, I would again, one of the reasons why I came to Wildwood, as um, I'm become more and more interested in conservation um, mainly since i went to mauritius um i've always been interested in it but it's been never seemed achievable um, and when i did that and i could see like where and you, as as an outsider you can see where the issues are in in these small countries about where the problems are what needs to be done and it, you know that's that's the straightforward bit it's how you fix them It's the hard bit but i've seen i've seen a lot of mistakes made in conservation purely through the fact that, that they don't engage with, with people, which, again, is transferable school. Zookeepers are very good at engaging with people. So I, I, it would be something to do with conservation, probably birds, probably, hopefully, somewhere abroad, like Hawaii or somewhere else.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Second to last question for you, James, and that is, in this industry, who would you say is your idol? Uh,
1: well, I, again, many people. It would be Laura Gardner, currently in Mark Haban, um, who I've worked with for many years. Laura, from when I was a spotty-nosed brat, she's literally my second mum. I, 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 I've grown up with her and, yeah, we, we, we've worked together through thick and thin in several different collections. Mark's an amazing. He's basically come to Wildwood and, and improved the welfare levels on everything massively. Not that they were low before, but he's just increased everything. He's seen where issues are. He's very good at engaging with the keepers and making sure things are, are going the right way. And two people I, I desperately miss, uh, a man called John Ellis, no relation. He was curator of birds at London Zoo. Um, and i would known him for since I worked at Leeds Castle. He used to be at Chessington for a long time, taken far too soon. And another amazing person from the International Zoo Vet Group, a vet called John Lewis. Again, an incredible vet. I've, again, worked with him since I was 16, 17. For many, many years, I luckily got to see him before we passed. But two people I desperately miss from the industry, and I think that the the industry will desperately miss them as well.
0: Some very kind and loving words there. I think you speak on behalf of many of the listeners um, towards those people. Um, yes, yeah, some, some very, very kind moments there. Um, now, we're on that last question of the podcast episode, and I want you, James, to sum up this whole industry, the whole zoo place that we work in, in only three words fantastic <laughs> terrifying <laughs> and family three very fitting words to sum up this whole industry and to conclude the episode James from myself and the listeners thank you so much for coming on sharing your stories and a few words of wisdom along the way it's been been a real real pleasure yeah would be lovely I'll definitely come back if you ever want me yeah absolutely and hopefully we'll get you on again very very soon thank you very much mate uh, thank you very, very much once again bye bye And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you
1: very, very soon. Bye.